Hello, and welcome to this FRDH First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. On September 11th, 1973, the freely elected president of Chile, Salvador Allende, was overthrown in a military coup. Allende took his own life during the army's assault on the presidential palace, the Moneda, in central Santiago. He was a socialist, a self-described Marxist. Mark Cooper is an American journalist who has had a distinguished career covering stories all over the world, but is best known for his work in Latin America. On the day of the coup, the first 9-11, he was in Santiago working for Allende, and I've long wanted to talk to him about that day. Cooper ended up in Chile following his expulsion from the California State University system for anti-Vietnam War activity on campus. He was expelled by then-governor Ronald Reagan. I started our conversation by asking Mark Cooper if he knew much about Chile before he got there. Vaguely aware. And then I became very interested because here I was, a 60s radical, and, you know, there was a peaceful revolution taking place in Chile, it looked like something I wanted to see. I wanted to visit. I wanted to learn. And I had to leave in any case. <laughs> so it seemed to be a good place to go. I got there with the intention of staying only a few months. But after a few weeks, I decided I was just going to stay as long as I could. And I was able to get a job in the state publishing house that Allende had expropriated, nationalized. And they published everything from comic books to books to pamphlets to whatever. I predated Google. They hired a number of us who spoke, were not mother tongue Spanish, to comb through the foreign press on Chile, clip it, organize it, and create a kind of research archives that you were there not very long, you ended up actually working directly for Salvador Allende. I didn't work for Allende until uh, about a year after I got there. The press clipping gig led to an interesting job at a big UN-sponsored economic development conference and then an offer to work for Allende, translating his speeches into English. Incredible. I was 22. The first big translation I did was effectively what would be called in the United States his State of the Union speech. It's the yearly address to Congress on, you know, the state of the state. And uh, I did it, I had already delivered it, but they wanted it published in English. And I translated it. And I have to say, I'd be a much better translator now that I was then I was I was not trained I was okay and I had a propensity for writing but I didn't really understand some of the nuances of translation like you don't have to really be very literal <laughs> you know sometimes it's not good to be literal you might actually put it into real english rather than yeah. stilted english yeah, yeah. And, one of my favorite is the standard um acting edition of enemy of the people very political play, but it's, <laughs> it's translated by Arthur Miller. And I right. can assure you, he spoke no Norwegian, not a word. Wrote, you know, he, there right. were people who translated into English, and then he made a, a play. It's true. Right. I mean, that that is yeah. an art. But it was interesting because I did the translation, and uh, 
I gave it to my boss. who's a great guy. And he said, well, okay, just, just hang out for a bit. I said, okay. And he disappeared. Apparently he took the speech to, he took the translation to a ending. And he said, well, I want you to come to me and I want you to meet the president. He wants to meet you. And uh, we met in a, one of his big offices and I was later uh, quite familiar with. And uh, he was very pleasant. I had seen him many, many times. I'd uh, gone to him, but not on a personal basis. So I had some sense of his person. And it did not disappoint. In person, it was even better. Up close and personal, he was even more of a mensch. And um, we exchanged some pleasantries. And he had already quickly read over the translation. And then he said to me in English, because nobody knew that he yet they could speak English. He said, I think this word here is wrong. <laughs> I did not know this was going to be a historic moment, so I did not make a note and cannot remember what word it was. But I remember that he thought that some word would be better than another word. And he spoke with a heavy accent and clearly was not. I don't think he'd be very comfortable speaking publicly in English, but he understood it. He also understood French. I think he understood German and uh, would not be surprised if he knew a few words of Yiddish. Uh, by the way, because uh, he was a fourth Jewish. One quarter Jewish. Yeah. I'm sorry. One quarter yeah, his, Jewish. His, his, his full Spanish name is Salvador Allende Gossens, G-O-S-S-E-N-S, from somewhere in Poland or Lithuania. I, I have no idea. I want to move along to yes. what happened in September of 1973. Now you've written this. You've written about it. You've written a book about it, and there's an extract up at Truth Dig, which is pretty compelling and an extraordinary memoir of what it's like to live through a coup when you actually work for the man who's being overthrown. Can you talk about that day? Well, you're probably going to have to make an edit here because I need to ask you a question. Go ahead. Uh, or we can. You want me to talk about my personal experience? You want? To I talk do. About, no. What, what, what's going on in the country? I mean, the, the the thing is, look. I know what ha You know, we we will come on to what happened before, what happened after, and to what degree you know, the CIA and was directly involved. Um, I I pay attention to the National Security Archives. I'm on their mailing list. My listeners yeah. should, if they're not, just. Yeah. To be aware, should go to the National Security Archive at George which Washington University, which right. is a nonprofit, and they, their stuff goes up for free. Get on their mailing list, and they no, have I come across was... some extraordinary stuff. That's amazing. We'll come on to that. What, okay. what I think is important is this is an event that happened, and it has had a tremendous effect on you know the history of Latin America. It somehow isn't hasn't been as important in American history. But America was involved in overthrowing a freely elected government. It just so happened that the man they overthrew was a professed Marxist, whatever yeah. that means. It's a yes. very broad 
broad term. Yes. And you lived through it. So I'd just like to know a bit more about the day itself and how you managed to avoid getting arrested since you worked for the mound. Yeah, good. Uh, I'm just, I'm, I'm pausing for a moment to try and synthesize it because, uh, you know, this, I could write a book about it <laughs> or two. So I'm going to try and condense this uh, and, and move me along if it, if if we get into a slog. Ten days or so before the coup, a former roommate of mine, an Argentine exile who had been a guerrilla in Argentina, he'd been in the ERP and was exiled in Chile, he came over to visit me. And we had this moment that's out of a movie where we're sitting on... Uh, a ledge inside my apartment, but on a, in front of a bay window, 17 stories up that overlooked Santiago. And he ruefully, you know, as the sun was going down, saying, he said to me in Spanish, this is going to help. This is going to help. These are the last days. And he pulled out a nine millimeter browning. And she brought a smile to my face because guns were not easy to get a hold of in Chile. And I said, well, what's that about? His his nom de guerre was Django. I said, what's that about Django? He says, they're not taking me alive. He said, I'm, I've already cased it out. When the coup comes, I'm, I'm going into the Swedish embassy if I have to shoot my way in. By the way, I was in Sweden 10 years later and he was there. <laughs> he had made it. <laughs> uh, the point of that is that we kind of knew that a coup, that a confrontation was coming. The reason the young men knew, three months earlier, there had been an attempted coup, a poorly organized one by a single unit in the army. While it was going on, Salvador Allende had told workers to occupy their factories and defend democracy. When the coup failed, the workers remained, and that was not the president's intention. Allende had lost control of his base. By the end of summer, all branches of the armed forces were staging high-profile raids on the factories. The tension was high. So they were clearly rehearsing in public. The morning of September 11th, which was a Tuesday, the Sunday prior to that, I had gone out late at night drinking, with friends, which means that I came, I woke up Monday with a hangover. <laughs> and I was in for the night when my girlfriend, who's my current wife, we celebrate 50 years of marriage the next month. She came over, she was a school teacher, and she came over to hang out. We weren't going to go anywhere. When then another friend came over, an American friend who was not political. I never really figured out his story. I think he was kind of uh, hiding out from a minor drug charge, maybe in the United States, maybe a marijuana charge or something. But he was uh, living in Chile and the exchange rate was quite favorable and he was comfortable and having a good time. He was not political, but he was a lot of fun. He come over and he had his own little uh, taxi driver who he had hired for the day and night. Right. 
The trio went out into an already deserted Santiago to look for a restaurant that might still be open, found none, and ended up back at Melvin's place, outside the center in a well-to-do suburb. And I said, okay, I have to get up early tomorrow morning because my residency visa expires on the 7th, on the 11th of September, which is tomorrow. I have to go down and renew it because I'm going to Argentina next week with, with Allende, and I need the I need my papers in order. So you guys sleep late. I'm going to get up early. I was up around eight or so, which was spectacularly early for me. It was a beautiful day. I remember I got dressed and was and I called for a taxi. Uh, There was only one company that did radio taxis and they were friends of mine. Uh, And I couldn't get through their line was busy. I didn't know actually the phone was cut, but the line was busy. Couldn't get through. So I said, I'll just get a taxi on the street. (laughs) And I had to walk about three blocks to get to the main street. And uh, a taxi stopped. And he said, where do you want to go? I said, downtown. And he looked at me like I was out of my mind. And he said, "Uh, there's problems downtown. And people spoke in code a little bit like that because you didn't really know who you were talking to. And the country was divided, right? Like the United States today, right? Like being stopped by a cop in Alabama or something, right? And uh, I said, there's problems downtown. I said, are the problems using the code? I said, are the problems with uh, speaking in Spanish with uniformed elements? <laughs> he goes, Yes. I said, okay, I got it. I got it. I went back into the house, turned on the radio, and there it was in full living color. And it was terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Uh, You know, I was uh, 10 miles from home. My apartment, as it turned out, was, and this is not an exaggeration. I wish I could show you the pictures. I lived in a complex of high-rises, that was full of foreigners and leftists. And at one point, Regis Debray had been my neighbor. <laughs> Tupamaros had been my other neighbors. Uh, but my apartment, Scout's Honor, was at the most 75 meters across the street, directly across the street from the big UN building that Pinochet appropriated to use as his temporary headquarters for the coup and for the first few weeks of government. So that meant that my apartment was actually in Pinochet's personal security zone. So it was a good place not to be uh, the morning of the coup. Unfortunately, I had my passport there. I had some money and I had a 22 revolver with a couple boxes of ammunition. Don't ask me why, because I don't have a good answer. For that. I bought bought it for five bucks, and fortunately, I never pulled the trigger because it would have blown up in my hand. I also had on the floor of my apartment, I had several two-way radios, because I told you that my friends ran the radio taxi company, and this was a company that was occupied and taken over by the workers. It was worker run. And I was their radio technician because I understand radio. 
So as a solidarity, I fixed their radios. So I had these two-way radios on the on the floor, and I had my visas ready to go to Argentina with the Yendi and then to Cuba after that. So if the if I had been in my apartment uh the you know at the time of the coup, it would have been very ugly. Mm. Very ugly. It was ugly enough, but it would have been even uglier. So what so, did you what did you do then? If you couldn't go to your apartment? Well, couldn't do anything because there was a twenty four hour curfew for the first four days. Right. So you were stuck out in the suburbs with your friend Melvin had, and, and your had, wife. We, or your wife we, had, we had on hand in that house, we had a case of Pisco liquor, which came in handy, a, a freezer full of Eskimo pies that my buddy had bought on the black market, and a couple of sacks of onions. That was it. I was listening to the radio. Uh, waiting, the phone came and went, the phone line. There was nobody to call because nobody was where they were supposed to be. I did call my office. I called the Moneda, but that was a no, there was no way to get through. So by now, this is like over a period of days. So by now, you know that Allende is dead and the country is now in the hands of Pinochet in the army, the military, and yeah. you're you know what your personal danger is, and the danger of of your friends as well and colleagues. So you're and you're stuck. You can't do anything. You must have been eating your liver, pisco sautéed or not. You know, it was. Uh, I, I would describe it as being in kind of a trance, a self induced coma or trance. I mean, I wasn't sitting around crying. I was way beyond that. I was in shock. So I was quiet. And uh, my girlfriend was with me, too. She was stranded. She lived another 15 miles, 10, 12 miles on the other side of downtown where I live. So she was very far from home. And she did not, her parents did not have a telephone. Her neighbor did. So we were able to get a message to the neighbor eventually after four days. But yes, I was eating my liver and trying to figure out what to do. The coup was on Tuesday, or they announced Thursday night that the curfew would be lifted on Friday for several hours. I don't know, from, you know, nine to six. And about a half hour after the curfew was lifted, a friend of a person I was staying with, that we were staying with, came over. This was not somebody that I liked very much. He was a French national who owned a restaurant and was uh, very pro-fascist. And he looked at me and said, you're fucked. And I said, oh, thank you. I hadn't figured that out yet, but thanks for the information. And, he's, and I said, well, you know something I don't know? He goes, yeah, I know something. I know that they've already raided your apartment and they're looking for you, right? Now, you have to understand, Michael, that in the previous four days since the first hour of the coup, all you heard on the radio was martial music and then interrupted by sternly read military decrees 
was one decree after another, like, you know, go outside during curfew and you will be shot on sight, <laughs> stuff like that. And then long lists of people's names that were being read that said, you must turn yourself into the minister Ministry of Defense by 5 p.m. today. So they're reading lists out. I'm waiting for my name to be on the list. Fortunately, it wasn't. I wasn't that big a fish, but I was big enough. I was a little fish, but I was big enough that if they got their hands on me, I'm not sure what would have happened. Uh, on the fourth day, on the Friday, when they lifted the curfew, and this guy came over and said, they're coming after you. I committed what I believe to be the last act of naivete in my life. <laughs> Inspired by my memory of the scenes of Rosalini's Roma, was it? Chita Aperta? Oh, I don't know if you're... Yeah, Roma Chita Aperta. Yeah. Right. Home Open City. One of the great films, actually. Great film. All I remember from the film were the foreign embassy cars with white flags, you know, racing across the city, picking up their nationals. Now, during the three years I had been in Chile, I had no contact with the U.S. embassy whatsoever. I was not registered there. They, you know, I had no contact, zero contact, never had been there, nothing, right? The last act of naivete is at around 11 o'clock in the morning. I called the U.S. consulate. And I was not, I knew that they were supporting the coup, for sure. I mean, that was not a secret, that the U.S. was going to be well disposed towards the military coup. But in my supreme naivete, I thought, well, if I call up as an anonymous American and I'm in trouble, they'll, you know, they'll send out one of those cars with a white flag, come pick me up and put me up at the Sheraton, right? <laughs> I called and I spoke to some, I think it's the vice cons, I don't know who I spoke to, Tipton. And uh, she said, she treated it like a lost, I said, you don't know me, I'm an American student, uh, blah, 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 blah. and, you know, the, the police, have, uh, the military, I'm in a friend's house, and the military broken into my apartment and got my passport, they're looking for me, and I need some help. She treated it as a lost passport case, literally. I mean, it was, it was, it was, it was, she said, well, it's Friday, you know, it's Friday, we close at 12 o'clock, so, you know, it's too late now. Do you have a driver's license? I said, yeah. Well, bring your driver's license and $10 in on Monday, and we can begin the process of a new passport. <laughs> I said, okay, okay. Good. Is that all you're telling people? That's whether we have no further instruction. Just exercise a good judge. At that point, I decided I, I had to leave where I was. I had to do something. I rifled through the Rolodex in my head. Where can I go? Well, who, who, who can give me protection? There are plenty of places to go. <laughs> where can you go and be safe? And uh, my memory which was very sharp then, I remembered that some weeks or months, I can't remember when, in some casual conversation, 
an American friend of mine who was a leftist, kind of a naive, you know, Sandalista type, he had mentioned to me in passing, I don't even remember the context. He said, you know, I met the student counselor at the U.S. Embassy, and his name's Dennis Allred. Well, Allred was easy to remember for obvious reasons in Chile. That's why it stuck. And, he, and I said, yeah, and so... And he said, hey, you know, I think he's a really good guy. I mean, we had this long conversation. And, you know, I think he's, um, I don't think he's, uh, you know, a big Nixon's guy, right? I said, okay. And I forgot about it. Well, given that that was the only name of a U.S. diplomat that I knew, I figured, well, I'll call him. <laughs> well, I have nothing to lose. <laughs> I called the U.S. Embassy that same morning. And I said, I would like to speak to Dennis Allred. And they said, oh, Dennis is not here. Would you like his home phone number? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, I'll give you my two kidneys and half my liver for it. Yes. They gave me his home phone number. Uh, the phone was working. I called him. I got out about half a sentence. And he said, he's very nice. He said, look, I don't want to know any details. He says, do you need protection? I said, yeah. He said, well, you're welcome to come here. Um, I said, okay, I'm coming. What's your address? And he gave me his address. His address was Merced, Merced, 208. I knew where it was. It was right. It was, it was a block from where I lived. It was behind where there was my apartment, there was Finish's headquarters, and there was this guy's apartment. This guy's apartment turned out as it as, as I was walking there and remembered, it was next door to the U.S. consulate. <laughs> That's how I knew the address, right? Well, I had to walk. It's the longest I ever walked in my life because it was too dangerous to ride the buses because they were pulling people off the buses and searching. And I didn't have the proper... I disposed of my compromising documents, but I, I didn't have any... Uh, exculpatory documents on me. I walked 10 miles or nine miles, whatever it was. It took about three, four hours. I walked there and I got there. And of course, in front of the U.S. consulate, there was a whole deployment of the Chilean military uh, defending their friends in the consulate. And I figured, well, I have to get past these suckers and get to the next door. But they didn't, they couldn't, they didn't bother me. They didn't care. They, they didn't check anything. And uh, I got into the apartment and there's this guy who's 10 years older than me. He was in his early 30s, tall, very American, red hair, three-piece suit with a tie on. I mean, you know, the whole shooting match. Very nice guy. I walk in and he said, sit down. It's Mark, right? I said, yeah. And I, he said, is Mark, I don't want to know anything. Don't tell me anything. He said, you're welcome to stay here as long as you want. I have good news, bad news, and good news. I said, okay, let it rip. He says, the good news is that I am the, you know, diplomat at the U.S. Embassy. And this house and I have diplomatic immunity. Uh, it's good news. What's the bad news? The bad news is 
on Tuesday, the day of the coup, the ambassador asked me for my passport, locked it in a safe, and told me to go home and call him next week. <laughs> so here I am. <laughs> You're with me. I said, yeah, it's pretty bad news. And I said, well, you said there was other good news. What's that? He said, good news you're really going to like. I said, what's that? He says, I have one of the only direct dial long-distance telephones in the country, which was true. And you could not get a landline phone. I was a Yendi's translator. I was on a seven-year waiting list for a phone in my apartment. And then they, you had to long distance, you had to go to the phone company and ask, you know, they had to place the call. Or, this is direct time. So all of a sudden, I was in touch with the world, thanks to the U.S. government's uh, payroll, right? And that was very good because I was able to call my family, my friends, and get my wife situated, et cetera. Uh, my wife, when they lifted the curfew and I went to Dennis's house, she went to my apartment. And my apartment had not been raided yet. She was able to dispose of my 22 revolver, pick up my passport and a couple hundred dollars I had and get out of Dodge. And I then spent, and that was, I was at Dennison's on Friday. On Monday, this is also important to the story. On Monday, by Monday, four or five other people arrived there, right? Nobody asked anybody many questions. Some people knew each other. I didn't know anybody who was there, but they were, apparently these were authentic American students, right? Some, a, a small delegation of four or five people came over on a Monday, the 17th. And they said, we're going over to the consulate to ask for protection. Do you want to come? I said, yes, it was next door. So we went next door. We were met by a consul named Frederick Purdy, who was uh, a very, very callous, arrogant, obnoxious, drunken piece of shit. And I was, uh, sorry. Okay, man. This is hard. I... I can't tell you how grateful I am that you're willing to relive this. That's no, okay. I relive this every day. Today's no different. Anyway, this guy who was uh, the consummate bureaucrat and probably, I don't say these things lightly because I'm not, We'll talk about the CIA in a few minutes. I'm pretty sure that he was, uh, he had some direct connection to the CIA. Well, he had to as a consul, even if he wasn't in the CIA, he had to work with him. He basically told us to fuck off. He said, "There's no, we, we have very stern, there was no compassion, no concern, there was nothing. He basically said, look, uh, we don't have any special instructions from the State Department. Uh, all we're telling people is exercise caution, obey the new authorities, and uh, be on the lookout for left-wing snipers. And of course... Uh, <laughs> they, they were in short supply. Yeah, well, uh, I said, you mean uh, those are the ones who are dressed like the Chilean military? 
And, you know, I didn't get an answer to that. The same day Mark was being turned away at the American consulate, his friend Charlie Horman was being arrested. Horman and another mutual friend, Frank Teruji, were murdered by the Pinochet regime while U.S. officials looked away. The events were depicted in Costa Gavras's classic political thriller, Missing. The next night, something came through. It came through some Mexican comrades, uh, Mexican journalists that I knew. And the Mexican government, which had supported Allende at the time, the Mexican government was organizing a flight out of Chile in conjunction with the United Nations, with the UN High Commission on Refugees. <laughs> and the friend of mine who was on the phone said, you want to be put on the list? <laughs> Which was the second best question ever. Do you want Dennis Allred's phone number? I said, uh, yeah, but I'd like to be on the list. I said, okay, well, we'll call you back in the next hour and let you know what's up. They called me back and they said, you have to be, you're leaving tomorrow. You have to be at the Sheraton uh, San Cristobal Hotel at 7.30 in the morning. Uh, curfew is lifted at 7. Uh, curfew lifted at 7 that morning. I walked out and as I told you, I was, I was staying next door to the U.S. consulate, which is on a park. Now, the park was a military camp. And they were actually using it to shell a university across the other way. So you know, there's like the 7 million soldiers in front of me. And uh, I got a taxi. And uh, it's only a 10-minute drive. And I got there. And the taxi drivers, I said, how much do I owe you? And the taxi driver said, are you leaving Chile? <laughs> said yes. I want you to leave with good a good impression. It's free. Right? I'm not gonna charge. And uh there we were. Uh there were about, you know, my memory does not serve me well on this occasion. I'd said there were probably about fifty of us lined up for that flight. There were the person in charge of the flight was somebody from the UN uh, and a couple of Mexican diplomats. And there was an American diplomat <laughs> uh, who I had not seen. But I remember him like yesterday. But I had not seen him before. That was the only time I saw him. And we had exactly a 10-second exchange. He said, uh, because he had said, are there any Americans here? I said, yes, okay. We looked at the flight manifest. Now, this was important. It was an important detail. He had the flight manifest on a clipboard. So he said, do you see your name here? So I looked, and I said, yeah, that's my name. Here's my ID. When I looked at the manifest, it was actually a safe conduct pass. And it was signed by the new foreign minister of the junta, uh, Admiral Ismael Huerta, commander-in-chief of the Navy. Well, this was important because they put us on a bus. They took us to, this was the first flight out of Chile uh, after the coup. They put us on a bus, took us to the domestic airport, because the international airport was still closed. We're 
getting in line to get on the airplane. And uh, the immigration police were, had been replaced temporarily by guys in business suits, plain clothes police. But these guys were too, excuse me, they were too dicks, right? They were being real dicks about everything. And they get to me and they open my passport. They go, huh, looks like, uh, this was all in Spanish. So it looks like your uh, residence expired on the 7th, 11th of September. So me, I figure I've got nothing to lose at this point, right? I said, yeah, it's the same day the Constitution expired, you know? <laughs> if it, so a week ago, I guess you'll remember that. I said, yeah, but it's expired. I said, well, it's expired because... I was going to go renew it, but you folks closed everything. So, you know, it's your problem, not mine. Right? I, I'm leaving in any case. They go, well, you're not so sure about that. It's expired. And then they go, the, then one goes, expired. They go, it's out of order. No, it's illegal. No, you go sit over there or stand over there. I stood over there for a few minutes. While more people went through the line, I figured, I'm not going to be the last guy in line here and let them pull some bullshit with me. So I went back in, I, I just walked back in the line, and then I took the other tack, which often worked in a place like Chile, and I used layered note Salvador. I mean, there is an advantage to being an arrogant American now and then. Absolutely. And I don't have any problem playing that card if I if, if, to save my life if I have to. And I played it three or four times in my career, right? This was the first time. And I said to them, look, I said, uh, I don't know who you guys are. I said, but if you look at the safe conduct pass that we're flying on, it's signed by my friend, the Admiral Ismael Huerta. He's my friend like I'm fucking Mickey Mouse, right? <laughs> I said, you know, and I asked to be put on this flight because I have a meeting tomorrow at 5 p.m. in New York with the General Secretary of the United Nations. I said, so if you would like to call Admiral Huerta now and ask him if it's okay if I get on this plane with an expired residency because of you, please be my guest because if you don't call him, I will. That was a good move because they, I could see that <laughs> they were now on their back feet, right? Now it's like, hmm, maybe he's lying, but maybe he isn't, right? I should, I, I should tell whoever is listening that you're an expert poker player. You know how to, hold, you know when to hold them and when to fold them, and you know and how. This to was when them. to bluff them. This was when to push all in, right, and say. It's the, the actually it is it is what poker does. Poker is you make the other guy make the hard decision, right? So instead of me standing there deciding what I'm going to do, it was my move to make them say, "Hey, it's your move. You want to call Admiral Huerta? You want to call my bluff? What do you want to do?" Well, they had to save face, of course. So uh, you know, I've been through that many times already in Chile. So, you know, they had to do a little safe face saving. They clearly were going to capitulate, right? But they they said, uh, no, bad, bad, bad. And then they go, well, you're not coming back, are you? And I was wearing glasses that I remember very well. I took my glasses and coming back to Chile. And I said, never, nunca más. 
never again. I said, no, not interested. Leaving. Goodbye. Okay. And then they had to, you know, one more time. Okay, so you're not coming back. I said, no, I'm not going. Okay. And they stamped the passport, right? <laughs> and the flight, the flight was not a commercial flight. The flight was uh uh, 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 737 that the UN had requisitioned or had borrowed from the state copper company. And we were served bologna uh, sandwiches and Kool-Aid. And every, it was dead quiet on the plane. Nobody knew who it, everybody was. There was there were six kids in the back who were a swim team from Texas that had caught, got caught up in the coup, right? But there were also people that had bandages on that were beaten some people had been bloody. I mean, did not was not a happy looking group. And uh, we took off, and about a half hour or less into it, you know, the captain came on and announced, you know, we're at 30,000 feet and we've just crossed into Argentinian airspace. And the plane erupted in applause. But there wasn't a drinks trolley. <laughs> no, it's an amazing story. But I think. Just for the historical record, because this is something you were talking about with Peter Cornblue yes. in another part of the Truth Dig yes. files that you put together to mark this event. As, as the story is retailed, it is Salvador Allende was a Marxist yes. and he was trying to you know, set up something vaguely Soviet-like in Chile. No, I, and I'm not saying that this is correct. I'm just saying this is how you learn about it. And yet it seems to me that in some ways what was happening in and he wasn't succeeding at was in trying to just redirect a large economy and a society towards more socialist than social democratic but i guess this is a long-winded way of saying distinctly unthreatening in the context of a cold, of the cold war when washington was always on the alert for you know, the next Cuba. Is that right? This, well, yeah, that's how the story is told, but it's got very little to do with reality. This is where the left generally also has its head up its arse, to use a British term, in not understanding Allende and not understanding the CIA and the Nixon administration. Those are two important things to misunderstand if you're talking about this situation, right? Let's start with let's start with Allende because I think he's more interesting. Allende does not occupy the place he should on the left because the left has no idea what it is or what it was or what it has been. You're talking to somebody who's been on the left my, my whole life. But fortunately, when I was recruited into the left in the 1960s in the university, I was recruited by older, more mature very studied anarcho-communists. They were people who felt that their roots were in Catalonia. And it meant that I had a very anti-Stalinist uh, education as a leftist, which I'm very happy to say, because there's no disease worse for the left than uh, a soft spot or, God forbid, an affinity with Stalinism and repression, etc., Allende was a Democrat, small-D Democrat, through and through. 
his notion of a peaceful revolution in Chile was not a tactical choice. This was his life's work. This was his commitment. And it was a political commitment and one that uh, I'm speaking for him now, and maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think so. Allende was restricted by the Cold War from being as explicit as he might have been in terms of defining what he believed socialism to be. Because the Cold War and the geopolitical realities of the 1960s and 70s meant that he had to, not that he had to, he wanted, I mean, built an alliance, you know, and a friendship with Cuba. The Russians did nothing for Chile. They, the Soviets didn't, uh, they gave them nothing. I don't think they gave them $10. But Allende believed deeply in democracy, deeply. And while he was not critical openly of Cuba, I know, I know that he knew very well that he wanted, he, he wanted a democratic socialist. I would call Allende a revolutionary social democrat. Or he was an authentic democratic socialist with being a, but a real socialist. And yet... It it absolutely freaked out the Nixon administration that he won this election. The real motor force behind the intervention in Chile was Henry Kissinger. Certainly Nixon might have figured this out on his own, but he didn't have time because Kissinger was on it from the first moment, from before the first moment. He was on it before he was even elected during the campaign. They tried to stop him from being elected. They tried to stop him from being inaugurated. But that was coming. Why? Now, now there, what? Why? why? Do, you, do you know what it was? I mean, I've read That's some like, of the cables. We you know, know very, that... we know very well why, because it's in his own memoirs, and it's in the documents that have been secured by the National Security Archives, the formerly classified documents. And this is what the left doesn't understand. They weren't opposed to Allende because they thought Allende was going to turn Chile into Cuba. They were opposed to Allende because they thought France and Italy were going to turn themselves into Chile. And they were worried about the model of peaceful, democratic, socialist revolution or socialist transformation that I can tell you, and you certainly know, you and I are the same age, you're European, that was in the cards as late as that was in the cards in Italy as late as the late 1970s. I, mean, I lived in Italy, 1976-77. There could have easily been a socialist communist government if they wanted to. The communists didn't want to, but <laughs> they were smart enough to stay out of power. But but uh, he was worried that that the example that it that Allende could set by having a peaceful, democratic rise of Marxism or socialism to power terrified them, much more than the thought that Allende might... Uh, they, I mean, do you really think that Kissinger cared if... Uh, it, it, look, Allende was the ultimate Democrat. As far as I know, and I'm, and I, I'm not here to give a blanket defense, I can be critical of Allende as well. But to my knowledge... 
that government never locked up a single political prisoner. What I want to say is, do you really think that Kissinger or Nixon could care if Chile became a Cuba and, you know, there was a firing squad and they shot three or 400 right-wingers? What do they care? They support regimes all over the world that shoot people, right? They were worried about a much bigger issue. And that was, where are they going to lose Western Europe? Because one of the things on the left, and I remember this, especially from the late 70s, was the idea that, well, this is all part of a plan to protect, particularly as it relates to Latin America, it's a plan to protect U.S. interests, whether it's Anaconda Copper in Chile or United Fruit Company in Salvador and Guatemala. This is this is what the U.S. government was doing, is protecting private interests. Yes, of course. I'm giving Kissinger credit here as the brains behind the operation. He certainly had the most sophisticated view. Were there, you know, run-of-the-mill cold warriors uh, in, you know, embedded in the Nixon administration and the CIA? Of course they were, right? People who were willing to do anything against anybody for any reason who called themselves socialists or communists, right? And the United States did have financial interests in Chile that were nationalized, not only uh, the copper mines, but uh, also the IT&T, the telephone. But that was, yeah, that was an issue, right? Mm -hmm. If you read the documentation from the U.S. government, the internal memos to each other, right? They're not talking about copper. (laughs) Okay. They're talking about Okay, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop you there. I'm going to keep. I'm going to talk. You drink from your jug of, I think that's tea. Is that iced tea? That jug? Of course. Yeah, better be. You're making perfect sense. I'm sure it is. So look, um, I'm going to talk for a minute while you catch your breath. It's interesting because this is 50 years ago, and I first contacted you a year and a half ago about doing a program for the BBC. We have an, a slot called Archive on Four. And I know that you have recordings that you made at the time. And there's news recordings. I thought, well, this is a, a good way to explore what happened in Chile. And I thought, you know, they, they commissioned the piece and you and I could go to Chile and meet your in-laws, whatever, uh, your family. <laughs> your in- I'm assuming your, your wife's parents have moved on. But anyway, no interest. Absolutely no interest. I was stunned. And then, out of the blue, because this was, in my theory of history, and we're the same age, the pivotal month for people our age, not just Americans, but around the world, was this basically six-week period from September 11th, the first September 11th, with the coup. And then three weeks later, you have the Yom Kippur War or the October 6th wars, it's called um, on the Arab side, when Israel came very close to losing. And then you have the Arab oil embargo, which as a result, and the, it it, it essentially killed off what was left of the, not just post-war economic settlement, but as it's turned out in history, the New Deal. Because from 1933 to 1973, the basic understanding of how to run a modern economy was Keynesian. People followed FDR. And then on the far side of the oil embargo and the inflation, you have the election of 
Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan and neoliberalism as an organizing principle takes over. So in the middle of all of that, and this is what is so extraordinary to me, the Watergate crisis is erupting. Nixon and his White House minions thought they'd got over the worst when they appointed a special prosecutor. The special prosecutor isn't backing down. He wants the goddamn tapes. So meanwhile, Kissinger is running the world because Nixon is too busy dealing with the chaos internally that he and his team have created, the problems they created for themselves. Right. Anyway, the BBC came to me in June and said, oh, we should do something about the 50th anniversary of the October <laughs> War. Okay, well, it's an it's an era I know about. So I did that 50th anniversary instead of this one, which is why I'm glad we're talking. But in the middle of it, there's a phone call. There's a, uh, thanks to the National Security Archives, they found this declassified document. Kissinger is contacted by Brent Scowcroft, who was Deputy National Security Advisor at that point. Edward Heath would like to talk to the president. Is it possible? And Kissinger's response, transcribed, I just saw him a few minutes ago. He's loaded. I don't think so. <laughs> you know, but but just to, just to go back to, to Kissinger. Uh, Michael, Michael, under certain under current circumstances, if Trump gets reelected, we forgive Nixon and ask him to come back. We do. So I, all, I, all is forgiven. It, yeah, it, it is true. It is true. Although Henry, Henry Kissinger is still with us as we speak, I'm convinced. I'm convinced that Jimmy Carter is hanging on in hospice care because he's not going to go before Henry Kissinger. Kissinger Kissinger's role in Tilly is really. It's easy to satanize uh, Kissinger, and he deserves it for sure. But really, his intervention in Chile was demonic, really. So let me just ask you one general last question, sure. which is, to me, this has always been a very important event. To me, it seems like it's virtually unknown, barely remembered. You remember it because you lived through it. I remember it because I'm of a certain age. And are you surprised? No, I'm not at all. I Does think that, that bother you? Well, the answer is yes, but but it's much broader. Yes, because the problem is much broader than Chile. I mean, I, I had to laugh when I was there in January. Uh, I spent the whole month there. It was not a very agreeable experience because it turned out to be very different than I thought. Uh, but. I was writing a piece on the first year of the government of President Bordage, right? The 37-year-old millennial who is the president. I had several Chileans ask people in the street, ordinary people. What do Americans think of President Bordage? <laughs> and I laughed and I said, well. They're having a little bit of trouble remembering that there's a place called Chile. They're not quite sure who the president of Mexico is. And they certainly don't know who their local congressman is. 
I don't think they know anything about President Boric. And of course they don't. And it was very difficult for me. I mean, this is the answer. When I was there for a month and came back and was charged with writing the first of a series of articles. And this first one had to be a big one. And I was stumped. I mean, I've been doing this for 50 years. And I was saying, how am I going to write about this? People don't know what I'm talking about. How do I write about this for an American audience? It's just a blank slate. But it's not just Chile. I think more dramatic than Chile, the United States was involved in the coup in Chile. The CIA supported the coup. The CIA paved the way for the coup. I would agree with others who hold the position that the coup would have happened in any case without the CIA. The CIA was not involved in the operational part of the coup. The CIA's job was to destabilize the Chilean economy and Chilean society, and they did a good job of that. But the coup was the work of the Chilean armed forces, right, who were highly trained and very happy and ready to 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 stage the coup. In some ways, the United States' involvement in Central America was much greater than it was in Chile. I mean, for 10 years, we poured a couple of billion dollars into the Contras in Nicaragua and into the Salvadoran uh, military, where, you know, they killed tens of thousands of people. Speaking as an American, speaking as an American journalist, speaking as an American journalist who's sensitive to public opinion and to, to political debate, you might as well erase those countries from the map. I mean, there isn't even a recognition that we ever had anything to do with it. The silver lining is that at least today, a President Biden can meet civilly with a President Boric of Chile and actually get along and actually be allies. And that's important. It's not fully explicable, it's not fully understandable, but things change. That's the only silver lining to what in fact is an abandonment of these areas where the U.S. had deep involvement and then wash their hands of it completely. Well, Mark, thank you very much for your time. No, thank you. Thanks for letting me chat for only an hour and 45 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) I hope you pay yourself well. Well, listeners, as you know, I don't pay myself. I rely on you to show you value my work by visiting the website goldfarbpod.com and making a donation. It's easy to do. My thanks again to Mark Cooper for reliving the trauma of those days and bearing witness. It was not easy. And I want to thank him for putting together a tremendous series on the first 9-11 at truthdig.com. I recommend it highly. And If you know younger people who have no idea about this important but neglected historical event, encourage them to listen to this podcast and visit Truthdig. There are things people should learn about and remember. Chile is one of them. Thanks.